Lately, I've been reading this book. It's called How to Die. All right, good reaction already, right off the start. This book is an analysis of a collection of works by the Roman philosopher Seneca. Um, he was an ancient Roman philosopher, but he was from the school of Stoicism, which is Greek thought. And personally, I, I know we talk a lot about Greek thought. We don't want to come into the church and all that. I, I, I do agree with that. Syncretism is no good. But wisdom uh, is, you know, it's a good thing to follow when it's there. So there are things within the practice of Stoicism that I find very valuable. Um, they talk about how to live. Um, they talk about how to conduct yourselves in life. Uh, how do you moderate your emotions so you're not just reacting all the time to everything going on. You're thinking about things. You are um, kind of calming yourself down a little bit before maybe making big decisions and you're, and you're thinking through the, the outcomes of some of these big things in life that can happen. If somebody wrongs you, you don't just go to them and, and punch them in the face. You, you sit there and think it through and realize, you know, maybe they're going through things worse uh, than I am and I'm going to just calm myself down, not react emotionally. So that's something that I've really appreciated in... Um, some of the Stoic philosophers. Now they do also talk about death, as most philosophers do, you know, I mean, what's philosophy if you're not talking about life and death? So Stoicism talks about, um, you know, dying well and, and living well, but not being afraid of death. And I think this is, this is a really good uh, characteristic to have. The Bible talks about numbering your days and, you know, just not being fearful of what's to come. Um, Christ says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear that the one that can not only kill the body, but kill you as well. And that's God. So I think there's, there's something in Stoicism that has some sort of value to it, but Seneca admittedly was a different breed of Stoic. This guy loved death. He talks about it all the time. Like in every one of his writings, he's coming back to this concept of death. He actually advised people that they should rehearse death. Just every chance you get, think about your death. Think about, oh, how's that going to go? How's it going to feel? What am I going to feel like at that time? It's kind of a morbid thought. He even went as far as visiting people who were dying, and he would just learn from them and learn from their experience and their perspective and try and figure out, like, how should I conduct myself when I die? And remember, this is in ancient Rome when people are told by emperors, you got to go die now because you're a political opponent I don't want around. And their duty to their country commanded that they do it. And so they had to face death on a daily basis. And so Seneca is in this, this mindset, and he talks about death a lot. He was consumed with it. And often his critics would say, Seneca is obsessed with death. To which he might reply, no, you're just obsessed with life. And this got me thinking, are we one of these things? Are we obsessed with life? or obsessed with death? Should we be obsessed with life or obsessed with death? Is this a thing a Christian should do? Because in some ways Seneca's teachings make sense. You know, we're not supposed to fear death and a way to not fear something is to become acquainted with it. Recognize our mortality. Don't try and hide away from that and don't cling to life at all costs. But still, doesn't obsessed with life sound so much better? Doesn't that just like sound like a more Christian mindset? Doesn't that sound like what the Bible would instruct us to do?
Now, on considering this, I remembered, of course, that the Bible is not silent on the topics of life and death. In fact, if we choose to look at the Bible through this lens, we could say that the entire story of the Bible is the story of life and death. And this lens is what we're going to be looking through today as we survey the scripture. And hopefully by doing this, we can gain a helpful lens as to our place in the story, but also answer the question, should Christians be obsessed with life or death? So before we start this survey, I want to just uh, touch on a few things right off the bat. Because there are certain words associated in the Bible with life and death that we're going to read. And sometimes the scripture makes it very clear that that's what we're talking about. Like certain things of imagery or certain metaphors or parallel um, parallel words or uh, things in the world. And so I want to make sure that in the places that we're going to go through that aren't explicit, we're aware of what these parallels are. Some of them are obvious, just off the top of your heads, and some of them aren't. So life is often associated, or even just called things, like light, or goodness and righteousness. This is associated with life, order, and even things in nature, things that are alive, like a seed or a plant. These are all things that are associated with life. And sometimes the Bible could be talking to you about life and death, and use one of these examples for life without actually calling it life. So that's, that's all I want to say there. And then death is often associated with things like darkness or evil, chaos, disorder, or even things like water. Water, especially in Genesis, which we're going to go through today, is really a strong parallel of death and chaos. So first we're going to look at team life. What does the Bible say about life? What should we... What team should we be on? Team life or team death? What should we be obsessed with? If you would, turn with me to John 1, chapter 1. I'm going to be reading it uh, in the ESV. I like the ESV a lot, so probably a lot of times throughout this message I'll read from that. It's not terribly different, um, but if you hear any differences, it's not because I wanted to make some point that only the ESV supports. It's just, I like that translation. But in John 1, chapter 1, remember we're starting on team life figuring out what the Bible says about it. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So again, we have this parallel word here, life and light being compared. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here we have the stage set, light versus darkness, life versus death. And this picture is painted of kind of this cosmic struggle with light striking at the darkness, and then darkness trying to strike back, but unable to overcome it. And that, I like the phrasing here, and darkness has not overcome it. This is an ongoing thing that darkness is attempting to do. Turn with me to Genesis 1.1 to look at essentially what is a parallel account because John is drawing from Genesis. Says this, very, very similar, uh, even in the wording. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. These are words for chaos. And darkness was over the face of the deep. So we have chaos, darkness, and the deep. So waters, this is all death language. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So this hovering is movement. It is life. A spirit is life. And it's hovering over the waters. And God said, 
let there be light. Let's balance the scale just a little bit. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So even though we recognize this is the creation story, a story full of life, there's also death present in this story just before the life gets there. But a living world is created. It's important to remember, though, a living world is created, but darkness is not totally removed. It's separated. It's distinguished from life, but it's not removed. The chaos waters are ordered, but later on we see that waters flow out of the garden. So water is still present. Every tree in this garden is for life-giving food, but there's still the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that can bring death. So there's still a foothold that evil has at this time in history. When man takes of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man, I, that phrase, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, feels like the hole in the bottom of the sea song. I always think of that when I, when I talk about that tree. But when mankind takes of this fruit, God draws very hard and clear lines, just as he did at creation. He separated things out. The sea shall go this far and no farther. The darkness can be allowed to exist, but only for this time. It's not going to go on forever, right? There's a very clear line drawn, and this is what he does when mankind chooses to step over that line. In Genesis 3, verse 16, you can turn there if you want, just a page over, uh, we find... Uh, the outcome of what happens when mankind stepped over onto that other side of the line. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be toward your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, it's important to note, these are not curses. We often think these are curses that God places on mankind. It's like, okay, well, you did this, and so now I'm going to um, institute this one-two punch back at you, right? That's not what this is. It is literally just a consequence. The only things cursed are the serpent and the ground. The things here listed for mankind are just the consequences of their actions. God is just saying, because you have stepped over onto team death, this is what your life's going to look like. And no, it's not just an all-out um, harsh thing that God's dealing out to them or saying is going to happen to them. It deals directly with life. Woman bringing forth children, that's going to be difficult now. Life is going to have a hard time thriving on that side of the line. Man, you're going to be leaving the garden and you're going to have a hard time bringing forth life-giving food from the earth because you are on team death now. You stepped over that line. So that's what's happening here. It's not a curse. It's a consequence of, of crossing that war line. So mankind, we know at this point, is now outside of the Garden of Eden. They don't have access in the same way that they did prior to this moment to God's presence. They don't have access to Eden, which is the mountain of God, the land of God at this time, and the way is shut. And angels at the door holding a flaming sword. But... 
a glimmer of hope still remains. Just like in the beginning when we talked about how death was still present, right? It wasn't gotten rid of. The chaos waters were still there. They were just ordered. They were pushed back. Here, mankind stepped over into the land of death, but they're not left without a lifeline. They're not left without hope. God has plans to redeem his people, to save them from death, and to live with them again. And this exact thing happens in the book of Exodus. God sets up in Exodus and Leviticus a very particular way in which he will dwell in the camp of Israel. And they follow his instructions very clearly. I mean, there's, it's like, almost gets to be boring language because it says, God says, do this to this dimension in this degree, and Israel did this thing to this dimension in this degree. I mean, it's very clearly outlined that they are following God's instructions to hold on to that lifeline after they've stepped over into death. And some of these things, these rituals, these ceremonies, these practices, these restrictions, they can almost seem a little bit arbitrary. But are they? Let's go to Leviticus 15. I used to think Leviticus was the most boring book in the entirety of the Bible. I still have a hard time just sitting down and reading it. But wow, when you look at the Bible through a certain lens, um, certain things come to life in Leviticus that you just don't always see from reading uh, through face value. And we're going to see that right here. Leviticus 15, laws about bodily discharges. I'm just going to skim the chapter. You're welcome to read along or you're welcome to uh, skim it yourself. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. That's kind of gross. You know, you don't hear about this stuff in messages very often because it's like, we don't need to go through, you know, we can read that on our own. But there's a point being made here that's really, really important. Uh, go down just a little bit uh, to, to verse 19. So that's, that's a discharge, like a sexually transmitted disease. There's also one for um, like sexual intercourse. And then for a woman in 19, it says, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. That's not fair. You made me like this. I'm unclean just, just because? Well, it's not, you're, we're missing the point, I think. These things are not necessarily evil in and of themselves. Sexual intercourse isn't an evil thing. Having a menstrual flow isn't an evil thing. But they're associated with death. When a, when a woman menstruates and an egg is released, that is a chance that life is no longer going to succeed in that moment, right? A child will not be born that time of the month right? When a man has a a discharge from his body and it's a sexually transmitted disease, it shows that he was not treating sexual life as holy. He was treating it as common. He was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. He was essentially warring against life itself. And so all these things that almost seem arbitrary or seem like an old and archaic uh, way of thinking are just parts parts of our life that deal to some degree in death. And I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, there's a lot of examples of this all throughout Leviticus. There's uh, eunuchs, same thing. They can't have kids, you know, and they are 
in some way unable to perform uh, some of the ceremonial duties. If you're in contact with dead bodies, same thing, because you are associating with death. You are connected with death. Maybe you did it for your job. That's not fair. It doesn't matter. Life and death are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Life has no part with death. Even though death is a part of life, they shall, shall not meet. Never the twain shall meet, right? Leprosy, same exact thing. You don't come before God of life having been in contact with death. That's the message here in all these laws that seem to not make all that much sense unless we read it through this context. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. So, so far this has been the story of, of God drawing the line between life and death. And he draws a very hard line. I mean, he works out even the minutia where death is represented and life is represented. He said these two things are not to come in contact with each other. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, he makes this even more abundantly clear. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his, vo- his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. So here at the end of the law, even more clearly the battle lines are drawn. Although the rest of the Old Testament, we have themes like this just going on and on and on and on. We have Moses saved alive through the chaos waters of the Nile. We have Joseph saved alive through the pit that represents the grave. We have David living and walking through the valley of the shadow of death and no longer fearing it. We have Jonah dead for three days but made alive again from the fish. Whether you see that as symbolic death or actual death is kind of irrelevant. But this theme is all throughout the Bible. Life prevails. Life finds a way. Team life. There are two sides. We're exhorted to choose life. So this is the answer, right? We should be obsessed with life rather than death because God commands it, team life. Well, let's look at the New Testament. Let's see if the message is the same. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says this, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Wait, wait, wait. That doesn't make sense. Why would he rather be away from the body? That doesn't sound like choosing life, Paul. Away from the body and at home with the Lord, so dead is better. That's what Paul's saying here. I'm going to read from John 12. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What? If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose of death, I have come to this hour. So Christ came to die and he exhorts everybody else to follow him to death? I thought we were supposed to choose life. I don't get it. This seems like a mixed message. 
in Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his method of execution daily and follow me. Take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. What happened? I thought the Old Testament was supposed to be the doom and gloom one. The New Testament's the one that's all happy and cheery and full of life, right? That's not what I'm seeing here. So what is the New Testament trying to say? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Remember, this is one of the most encouraging books in the Bible. That's what people say. Philippians is just full of encouragement, and people read it when they're feeling down, and they just they feel so much better after reading through Philippians. But Paul says this in Philippians 1 and verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So, death is preferable and life is necessary. That's, that's our takeaway for the day, right? One last verse in 1 John 3, 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John is directly telling you, choose death. This just doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense. Is this contrary to Deuteronomy? So what are we to make of these verses on life and death? Are we supposed to be obsessed with life or obsessed with death? For once, I think we need to realize, and I think we do, that the life and death that are at war with one another is not this temporary life and this temporary death at the end of it. That's not really what's even being spoken about in these verses at all. These are symptoms of a much larger war going on. Eternal spiritual life and death without the gift of eternal life making it permanent these are the armies these are the battle lines I say all this which it kind of seems obvious because so often um, the reason I'm saying this is because so often we live our lives in a way that shows so much love towards them you know we man we love our lives so much and we hate death and we can do this almost to a point of being in danger of mistaking them for the real thing. This life and this coming death as the real thing. But they're just not. Life is important. It is a gift from God and we should be grateful for it. But it's eternal life in God's presence that I'm waiting for, that I'm choosing day after day. Death is bitter and it's an enemy. It should be done away with. It's going to be. But it only has temporary power right now. And God's going to do something about it. Our true hope lies past that. Actually, obsession with life or death can become idolatry. If you would turn to one final verse in Romans chapter 8. Now, Paul here is listing things that people might be concerned would remove them from the love of Christ. So people have this concern, oh man, I'm not sure I'm going to make it to the end. You know, I'm not sure I'm going to last. I'm not sure that he's going to hold on to me. And this is what Paul says about things that should concern us that might, you know, potentially be a fear for us that would lead us away from Christ. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life is listed as a thing that Paul wants to assure us cannot separate us from the love of God, meaning that sometimes it might try. I've never thought about that before. So what team are we on? Team life or team death? We should be counting our lives as blessings. We should be thanking God for them every day, but we shouldn't be afraid to lose them at any time for the sake of God or for uh, brothers in Christ. We should be excited and hopeful for eternal life, but we should realize that it's only through death and transformation that we're actually even, even able to inhabit eternity in the first place. So we should love life, and yes, death is bitter, but we can't hate it at the expense of being paralyzed by fear of it. So yes, choose life. Choose it in your actions of obedience towards God. Choose it in your love for one another. Choose it in your speech towards those around you. But realize that it's not this life that you're choosing with those actions. In fact, it's the opposite. It's death to self that you're choosing with those actions. And this is a death that should be chosen Eternal life with God is the team that we're on. And in this way, we shouldn't obsess over life. We shouldn't obsess over death, particularly physical life or death, but we should obsess over God who grants us those things as he knows them to be right in his time. Romans 14:8 says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's.